God, you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy of our lives. Uh, you're worthy of our submission, uh, worthy of our affection. And so would you have all these things this morning? Uh, whatever we bring in, whatever we carry, whatever we faced even this week that wars against um, our, our praise of you this morning, I pray that you'd help us to lay it aside. And whatever might stand against us and keep us from hearing you clearly this morning through your word and through your spirit, I pray that you would, by your power, uh, would, would loosen the things that hold us uh, captive, uh, that provide us anxiety, confusion, and then all of it through your spirit that you bring clarity and comfort and conviction that would make us more and more like Jesus. Um, Jesus, I thank you that this morning that we get to wake up another day uh, under the overwhelming shadow of your grace, uh, that where sin abounds, that your grace abounds all the more to sinners. And so we celebrate you, uh, the risen one. Jesus, you are alive, and you've given us the hope that we can be and that we are alive today and that we have the hope of eternal life for tomorrow. And we love you. We want you to work. We want you to be exalted. And, and I pray that you would use this time now uh, to, to magnify your name, to draw us close so we leave here being, knowing that we've been in your presence. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Uh, good morning. Uh, good to see you. Sorry, I didn't give you a chance to respond. I kind of rushed into it. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. And Excited to be with you again, and uh, if you're new with us, just to extend a special welcome to you, and you'll be praying for Pastor Chris. He uh, got diagnosed with pneumonia yesterday, uh, so I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful for our worship team. They just kind of stepped in, did their thing, and just led us in worship, and it's a good reminder to us that you know, we're not here to perform. We're not here to present information. We're not here to put on a show. We're here to, to worship Jesus, to make him known, to celebrate what he's done, and to open his word, and and uh, to, to be taught through it. So we're in a, a season, we're in a stretch of a, about eight weeks. We're on week five of a series called Real Talk. And uh, we make our, our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We'll be starting Second Peter in about three weeks. Uh, Pastor Bill will be preaching next week. And then uh, Kevin Collado will be preaching to kind of finish the series in a couple weeks. And this morning, um, if you were here last week, you heard me kind of give you the warning shot. For those of you who weren't here, I, I apologize. But this is, uh, the next two weeks will be in some measure kind of PG-13, because this morning we're going to talk about sex, romance, and singleness. And then next week, Pastor Bill is going to talk about gender and sexuality. And so this series is, uh, we're preaching through these topics uh, probably for a couple different reasons. One is just apologetically, and if you're not familiar with that term, it it's, finds its root in the word answer. There's a way in which we want to provide answers apologetically from a Christian worldview to many of today's uh, arguments against Christianity, as well as just some of the, the, the themes and tides of culture. And this week and next week, particularly, find their, their place maybe more in that second category of just themes, messaging from culture that we want to make sure that we really understand from a biblical worldview. And so this morning, we're going to look at sex, romance, and singleness. So over the last few weeks, um, I've had the unfortunate opportunity of having to look for a used car. So if you've had that experience, how many of you have had to do that before? Okay, you get into a used car and you, you try to figure out a number of things. And if you're as car illiterate as me, it's a very unnerving time, right? Because you're trying to act like an expert in many ways that you're not. And one of the many things that you look at is you look for 
uh, alignment issues. So you drive, right? And one of the things you do is maybe just take your, your hands off the steering wheel for a minute. Just see if the car pulls at all. That's one maybe easier thing you can see, much like having your windshield wiper fluid below. I mean, I can, I can see that, right? But if a car pulls, then you know that there's an alignment issue, right? And so this morning, I would say that this message is a little bit like that. It's more like a there's, there's a misalignment maybe in our mentality, our perspective, certainly in culture as it relates to sex, romance, and singleness. And if you're, if you're a little bit confused as to why those topics are being dealt with together, I think and I hope that by God's grace as I journey through this message, it'll be clear as to why I'm linking those together. But we're going to go through a process of seeking to kind of bring some realignment or orientation to these topics. And so, and you can kind of put your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to spend probably more time in that section than we will in others, but I'll be bouncing around a little bit. Most of the verses we'll have it put on the TV. Uh, The the two main ideas or points that I want to give you just kind of up front is this, is that sin, our sinfulness, distorts our view of intimacy and relationships. So sin distorts our view of intimacy and relationships. And the gospel of Jesus Christ reorients our view of intimacy and relationships. That's at the heart of what I want to communicate this morning, that because of sin in us, in the world, our view of intimacy and relationships has has gone way sideways. It's off the rails in many ways. And I think in some ways, by God's grace, we'll identify this morning probably in, in our hearts in ways that we maybe not fully recognize. But the gospel... The Lord Jesus, when he comes in and transforms a human heart, he reorients our view of intimacy and relationships. So what we see at the beginning of the Bible is that the God of the Bible is a relational God. He exists in community, Father, Son, and Spirit, like the tri-unity, the Trinity. And God exists, um, and he makes man in his image. And central to being made in that image and likeness is relationship. Like we're created for relationship with God and with other people. You see it in different ways in the first few chapters of Genesis. You see it in the fall that seems to indicate that there were moments in time where God would come into the garden and walk with Adam and Eve. Because after they chose to rebel against God, doing the one thing they were told not to do, when God comes into the garden after that moment, they, they flee. God comes to walk in the cool of the day, and they, they run. They hide from him. And you also see that pre-fall, pre-sin, you know, as God created man, he said it's not good that man should be alone. And that certainly finds its place in the marriage relationship that men, you know it's not good for you to be alone. You say yes and amen. But it's bigger than that. It's actually bigger than just the male-female husband-wife relationship. You could say it this way. It's not good for people to be alone. God created us for community. You hear us talk about that all the time. That's the whole reason we have life groups, is try to create a setting where we can build relationship and community with one another. And sex and romance are a gift from God, and they can and should be enjoyed within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Genesis 1.28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Part of that command, that dominion command, is the implications are sex and romance in the context of marriage that's healthy and right and biblical, and it's a good thing. And Genesis 2.25 says the man and his wife were both naked and were not 
ashamed. So in the beginning, God created men and women to have unhindered fellowship and relationship with him and with one another. And so to briefly put it, in Genesis 3, something happens, and all of that gets distorted and broken. So the moment that Adam and Eve rebel against God, they, they, eat from the, they, they seek to be God by eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, all of that gets fractured, the relationship with God and the relationship with one another. The intimacy and fellowship with God that used to bring them great joy and be enjoyed with great peace, now they, they hide and flee in shame. And they recognize that they're naked and they're ashamed with one another. So both our relationship to God and with one another is broken as a result of sin. Sin distorts our view of intimacy and relationships. And it doesn't take long at all in the book of Genesis. We studied through that book a couple years ago to just see the, the fragments and shrapnel of the brokenness of human relationships. You say, it second, secondly, it starts with Cain and Abel, and you see it, you just kind of watch the, the thread of broken relationships throughout the whole Bible. And as we see in Genesis chapter 3, the choice to rebel against God causes the closeness and intimacy Adam and Eve enjoyed with God to be replaced with shame, and the similarly with one another. They're pushed out of the garden, out of God's presence, unable to return. And harmony and intimacy are replaced with strife in our relationships with God and with other people. And we have to start here in this place. God created us to need one another. He created us for relationship with him, with one another. And sex and romance and the context of marriage between a man and a woman is a God-given, good, God-honoring thing. But because sin distorts our view of intimacy and relationships, so it goes that sex and romance and singleness, which we'll get to in a moment, are also distorted. So here's some things I want to share, just kind of practically an observation, some things on my heart just pastoral. The reason I chose this is because there's some things on my heart that I feel like we need to hear. And this is going to be a little bit different message because I'm not just preaching from one text, and I want to just kind of make some observations. But our culture, I would say it this way, our culture wants sex to be both nothing and everything all at the same time. Our culture wants sex to be nothing in the sense that sex can and should be casual, free from commitment, and void of sacrificial and humble love. In that sense, culture wants sex to be nothing. But at the same time, culture wants sex to be everything in the sense that sex is an essential human experience, and without it, you cannot live a life full of flourishing and be fully human. Now, that might, might sound like hyperbole, but I don't think it is. Because the cultural tide seems to indicate that without sexual expression, you can't be fully human. And we're going to get to the answer to that biblically, but I want to just pose that. Culture, people around you in the world who don't believe in Christ, we live in an age where, where sex is propped up as that which is both nothing and everything all at the same time. And sin causes sex and romance to be viewed as nothing. So let's talk about that just for a little bit. Sex and romance are a gift from God. They're to be enjoyed freely in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. You see, scripturally, and you see this in 1 Corinthians, if you want to read a broader section of what I'll cover briefly this morning, 1 Corinthians 5 through 7, where the, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the first seven chapters, there's a whole lot of mentioning about sexual immorality, uh, notably so because they're in a city, this church is in a city where Sex was very much a part of the culture, much like ours. But sexual immorality can be defined as any sex outside of marriage. 
pornography, polygamy, prostitution, homosexuality, adultery, any sex outside of marriage. That's a fairly simple definition. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul says it this way. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Here's one. I want to pause here before I get to the end of that verse. That we should all see ourselves in this list. Like the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. You'd be like, wait a second. I'm not righteous and so I'm imperfect. So how does it, how does it become that I get to inherit the kingdom? Of, how do I get to heaven if the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God? It's because of what comes next in 1 Corinthians 6.11. But you... Such were some of you in all of those categories, sexually immoral, idolaters, and the rest. You're unrighteous, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I want to pause here just for a minute. Because some of you, when you read this list, much like from my own experience before I came to faith in Jesus, I came to faith when I was 21. I had a whole lot of life I lived before that just as a worldly guy. And some of you read this list and you automatically feel a sense of condemnation. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Like to the extent you feel that, that's your response to this list, this text. Run to Christ. Throw yourself upon Christ. Because at the end of your life, the only thing that will allow you to be found righteous is Him. It's Him. And if you feel shame, He can wash it away. He's the only one. Run to Christ. And let it be said of you, like this church, this mess of a church, such were some of you. That used to be your story. This used to define your life. All of these things, or some of these things, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And notably, all those things are verbs happening to the person by a foreign person, namely the Lord Jesus. You don't wash yourself. You don't justify yourself based on your good outweighing your bad. But you run to Jesus and he, through the spirit of God and his power, will wash you clean, make you new. And for some of you, you need to feel that right conviction that God wants to use today to move you to a place of righteousness. And all of us need to feel, if you're in Christ this morning, you're a Christian, just remember that used to be you, but now you're in the Lord, seeking to walk with him and for him. But when sex is nothing, then singleness in the culture can be a place of supposed great freedom, right? That's what the cultural message would be. If sex is nothing, then singleness becomes this space where there's supposed freedom to just kind of do whatever you want, be with who you want to be with, be casual and kind of hook up culture. That's the messaging. It has some sort of allure and appeal but they don't tell you what happens on the backside or in the midst of it, how you get lost in it, how you lose yourself, the kind of emotional and physical trauma that can come with that kind of perspective and lifestyle. But when sex is nothing, 
And then singleness in the culture can be a place of this supposed freedom where all sorts of casual, non-committed sexual experiences without the burden of monogamy are our experience. And I would say this, that there's a, there's a quest for intimacy and connection in the human heart. Because we were created for relationship, if we don't find it in God, we, we manufacture it and chase it down in all sorts of profane places. And this is one of the ways it will show itself. And we clamor to find intimacy and connection, unity and meaningful relationship. A lot of times that can be found by just this casual sex is nothing sort of mentality and practice in life. It actually erodes true intimacy, creating a shallowness in our relationships and leading to profound insecurity and deep hurt. And some of you, I believe, in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. But at this point, in this whole idea that's, that sex and romance are nothing, it becomes really important for us to think biblically about what it means to be single. So I want to commend to you a book by Sam Albury called The Seven Myths About Singleness. It's a very short book, but remarkably helpful. Sam is a really unique voice in Christianity today because he's a, he's a man, he's single, he's a pastor, and historically has dealt with same-sex attraction. But he's a godly, trustworthy man. And he wrote this book about singleness. And I want to commend you to pick it up. I'm going to quote him in a couple places. But here's one thing that he says in this book. He says, The Bible is clear that sex outside of marriage is sinful, something that is underlined in the teaching of Jesus. To be single is to refrain from any sexual behavior. If you're single long-term, as a Christian, that means being sexually abstinent long-term. But here's the challenge. Like, the world doesn't have any category for a life lived without romantic sexual relationships. Because after all, Sex is both everything and nothing all at the same time. And if you even subtly buy into that, what will happen is it will creep in this mentality of I'm always pursuing that to try to make myself complete. But is that true? Is that the picture of biblical Christianity? So sin causes sex and romance to be viewed as nothing. It also causes sex and romance to be viewed as everything. The cultural message is sex and romance are a requirement to be fully human. Having sex is what life is about. Being in a romantic relationship is what life is about, ultimately. Like the sexual revolution that we're in the midst of. Sexual expression as a, a personhood issue. It's like you're not fully human unless you can give expression and voice to your sexuality because it's, tr it's fully part of your identity. It's, in order to be fully human, you have to give into it, give way to it, give expression to it. That's not biblical. The greatest evidence of that is Jesus himself. Jesus was a single celibate man. And it kind, of, it kind of blows our minds to think that this man, this one that we worship, the one who is fully human, was also single. But let me, I, I kind of get ahead of myself here. If sex and romance are a requirement to be fully human, then it follows that a life without sex and romance is actually harmful to you. Sam Albury puts it this way. He says, singleness is assumed to be pretty much awful. Even the way we describe singleness reflects this. It's almost always defined in the negative as, as the absence of something. It's the state of not being married. 
It's the absence of a significant other. This defining by negation reinforces the idea that there's nothing intrinsically good about singleness. It's merely the situation of lacking what is intrinsically good in marriage. I'll just say this plainly. Sex is not a requirement to flourish in this life. Hear me when I say that. Sex is not a requirement to flourish in this life. Sex is not a necessary component to being fully human. Now, there's an objection some of you have right at this moment. You're like, yeah, it's easy for you to say, Matt, you're married. Maybe you're right to some degree, but don't look at me, look at Jesus. You might be right. It might be easy for me to preach this because I'm married, after all, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus was the the most fully human human that ever was. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And he never was in a romantic relationship. He never had sex. Jesus is our supreme example of what it looks like to flourish in life as human beings. And he was a single celibate man. And Jesus also introduces, in a way, the gospel kind of takes us to a place where it, it kind of busts categories for us in relation to singleness. In Matthew chapter 19, there's an example of this. Jesus talking about marriage earlier on, and the disciples in reaction to his talking about marriage are like, hey, it's better off that we don't marry. And then he, he kind of elevates or the picture of singleness. And he talks about eunuchs, who are those who, based on a vow, would oftentimes emasculate themselves. They wouldn't they wouldn't be in a relationship. They, they couldn't have children. And there was this kind of a category before Jesus came. And he, and he basically just kind of reorients people to think through a different lens as it relates to those who are celibate, namely for the kingdom of God. He says this, says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So in a culture where being single was viewed as abnormal and negative, Jesus introduces singleness for the kingdom. In fact, you could say he introduces singleness and abstinence for the glory of God. That's uncomfortable in the culture that we live in. That's exactly what he's saying. Singleness and abstinence for the glory of God. There's those who make that decision, and it doesn't mean they're living in a state of being just half human and not fully developed because they can't have sex. They've actually chosen to do it so they can actually serve God in a better way, which we'll get to in just a moment. And Paul, who is also single, echoes this sentiment in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. He says it this way. He talks about marriage for a little bit, and it's an interesting chapter. You can read it. He talks to those who are married, and he talks about sexual relationship in the context of marriage in verses 1 through 6 primarily, or 1 through 5. In verse 6, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, namely single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The gospel transforms singleness into a gift. So God's word declares that both marriage and singleness are 
a gift. At first glance, you can read this and be like, man, Paul, it's a pretty low bar for marriage. Like, hey, if you don't have self-control, just get married. Like, you read that and kind of walk away with this. If you don't take Ephesians 5 into view, he's already articulated in other places his lofty view of marriage. But he seems to be responding to a letter the Corinthians wrote him, and some of what he's dealing with is like, hey, it's okay to marry. It's okay to get married. But I want you to understand, actually, I wish that some of you would actually remain as I am, single. And he goes on to describe why. He says, firstly, it's a, it's a gift. He's demonstrating from 1 Corinthians 7 that it's not sinful to get married, and it's actually a gift. But in some ways, it's better to remain single. And he goes on to talk about that in more detail. Let's read a couple other sections in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 28. Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, those who were, were virgins, prepared to get married, that's what betrothed is, I have no command the unmarried, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, which is a little bit uncertain what he's talking about there, it's good for a person to remain as he is, namely single. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, if you keep going, verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 38, he says, So then, he who married his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And finally, in verse 40 of the same chapter, he says, In my judgment, the widow is happier if she remains as she is, namely, unmarried. Again, I'm not dealing primarily with marriage this morning. You know, Paul isn't taking shots at marriage biblically. You can read Ephesians 5, you'll see that very clearly. What he seems to be accentuating is this category that Jesus seemed to introduce. There is singleness for the glory of God. There's singleness and celibacy for the glory of God, for the purposes of God. So as opposed to viewing your singleness through the lens of what you lack, the gospel reorients us to view singleness through the lens of what you uniquely have. And Paul's this way, married people have worldly troubles that single people don't have. It's not worldly like fleshly, just like you have troubles in this world, in this life, if you're married, that you just simply don't have to worry about if you're single. And how many of you single people had to struggle to get shoes on a toddler this morning when you left? None of y'all did that. Right? You, this is a funny example, but that's kind of what he's talking about. There's a, there's a subset of challenges you have in marriage. It doesn't mean they're dishonoring or dishonorable, but they're just a different set of challenges, and you're free in some ways from those troubles, those other considerations. Married people have a whole lot of anxieties that single people don't have, namely for one another. They have to be concerned about their spouses. 
Singles have a unique capacity to live with undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, there's a couple things I want to say here just really clearly. I've, I've become more and more convinced of this having read this recently over the last few years. The gift of singleness. Some of you have heard that. Like, it's, it's in some ways kind of been co-opted almost like a spiritual gift. Like, you've get, been given the spiritual gift of singleness. I don't think that's helpful or biblical, quite honestly. The gift of singleness is not some especially, like, it's not a superpower that some people have and some don't. That you have to somehow evaluate, like, do I have, like, the supernatural ability to remain single? I actually don't think that's what Paul is getting at. I think what he's getting at is you need to see singleness as a gift from God, just like you see marriage as a gift from God. It doesn't mean that you have to discern if you have a special capacity or ability, or you just reside to pursue getting married wholeheartedly whenever you want, just because you, you're determined that you don't have the, the gift of singleness. In both directions, it can be harmful. But it's a gift. It's a gift loaded with opportunity and freedom to serve God. Singleness is a, is a God-given gift to you by the one who made you by himself and for himself. And just like 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that do talk about spiritual gifts, the essence of every spiritual gift given by God to his people is to build up the church and glorify God. Singleness is the same way. It's in the same category. Marriage is the same way. It's a gift given by God for his purposes, with his people, in the world, for his namesake. Do you view singleness that way? It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a permanent gift, right? We joke about, hey, I'd like to exchange this gift for something more desirable, like, you know. It doesn't mean it's permanent. What it does mean is that as long as the Lord has you single, view it as a gift, View it through the lens of the unique impact that you can have as a single person for the name of God. He may exchange your gift of singleness in the future for the gift of marriage, but whatever the duration of the season, he has entrusted you with a gift to be used for his glory. And if you view any season of singleness as a gift, you'll be able to see the ministry present in that season that you can do as a, a joyful, God-honoring stewardship that God has given to you. You know, for some of us, and I get this, and again, I'm, I didn't have a long season of singleness like as a believer. Uh, when I came to faith, you know, Hayley and I got married a couple years after I came to faith. And, but I think as singles, like a lot of times, and even as married people on behalf of our singles that we love, like we can, we can pray with one eye open a little bit. Here's what I mean. is you can pray like, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. You're all I need. And then you're like, but where's he at? Where's she at? But you, hey, you know, I'm just content, but whenever he comes, I'm going to be ready for him. You know, that's, so you can pray with one eye open, like somewhat dependent, but yet still looking. It doesn't mean you should be intentional, but you got to be resting in God's purpose in every season he has you in. All you need is the Lord, right? When Jesus is our pursuit and satisfaction, the gospel is our basis for contentment and joy. His love remains sure. His promises anchor my heart. I'm reminded he is the protector and shepherd of my soul. And there's unshakable contentment ever available to me. I shared this, these few things in a previous message, and I'm going to share them again because I think they're somewhat helpful. These are just kind of flawed perspectives or even statements you may have heard or said as a single or as a married person related to singleness. Hey, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. I don't want you to raise your hand if you said these. Just process through this quietly. We might, we might say to ourselves, like, hey, as, 
As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, then he'll provide you a spouse. Is that, like, where's, take me chapter and verse. I don't know if I've seen that scripturally. As though God's blessings are earned by our contentment, right? Or maybe it's like, hey, you're just too picky. God is just frustrated with you, and he's just waiting for you to lower your bar to his lower standard. That's not encouraging or biblical. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's a refining thing. But is singleness like a purgatory for people who aren't ready to get married? Everybody go like this. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not, it's not the way God views singleness. Like God's just trying to purge the imperfections out of your life so that you can be ready to, to be married. Should your season of singleness be purifying? 100%. Should you seek to mature before you get married? Absolutely. Is every single person who is single, single because of some spiritual or emotional deficiency? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So Tim Keller even talks about these kind of statements. And he says, beneath these statements is the premise that the single life is a state of deprivation for people who are not yet fully formed enough for marriage. And that is just patently unbiblical. The notion that singleness is an indication of a character flaw or emotional inadequacy or some other form of incompleteness is patently false and unbiblical, as is the notion that sex and romance are a necessity to your flourishing and being fully human. I want to finish today by just giving you some, some shepherding thoughts, just from my own heart to yours. I commend you to read 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 just to kind of take it in for yourself. Parents, I want to just share my, my heart as a parent. So I have six daughters. And uh, about five years ago, Haley and I were listening to a message together. And, it, and it, it just kind of adjusted my perspective in what I would say is, was a subtle but really significant way in this space. Because as a church body, this is something for us good to recognize that's helpful, is that all of us are impacted by singleness as a church body. Like we're made up of singles and marrieds and divorcees and widows. So as a family of those who are from all different sorts of backgrounds, it's important for us to think rightly about singleness. Not to mention the fact that statistically, all of us who are married, it's likely that we'll end up single again at some point in our lives. It's a sobering thought, but the very least should remind us, hey, it's important for me to think biblically about singleness, even if I'm not single right now. For you as parents, if you have kids, and for those of you who are even working with kids, like discipling younger people who aren't married, guard against the temptation to elevate marriage so much that you do it to the detriment of the blessing of being single. And I had to be, I had to kind of stop and evaluate a little bit because Haley and I love being married. Like God has just been so kind to us in our marriage. We love marriage. We love teaching on marriage and settings where we're with couples. I love preaching on marriage. I believe that it's a unique tool of God to display the gospel in the world. You see that in Ephesians 5. I deeply believe those things. And I think over time, like even with my girls, what can subtly and inadvertently happen is because of the elevation of marriage, it can lead them maybe potentially to feel what we're talking about this morning, that they're not quite fully human unless they're married. And I don't want that for them because I don't think it's biblical. 
Like I want them to value and esteem marriage, but I don't ever want them to feel like they're some JV human being or Christian if they don't have a spouse. God has purpose in singleness for his glory, for them. I don't ever want that to be diminished by the elevation of marriage because it seems to me that the Bible holds both in elevation as purposeful, meaningful, and God-honoring. And so just be careful in the way that you do. I'm not telling you to diminish the value of marriage, but just, just make sure the way you communicate over the course of the, the time you have with your kids carries both of those things to some degree in balance. A collective call to action for all of us. Because singleness like impacts all of us in the ways that I just described a little bit ago, like we need, we need to have a collective intentionality on the way we live with one another. Married couples, you need to pursue singles. You need to include them in your lives. You need to include them in your homes and in your life groups. Singles, don't wait to be pursued by married couples. Ask for time with godly men and women who are married to get time in their homes and to spend time with them. Be in a life group that's multi-generational and that where you can be with other singles as well as married couples who love Jesus and will spur you on in your, your faith. But that's a collective call to action. It should work both ways. Married's moving towards singles. Singles moving toward marrieds. So there's a collective call to action I'd encourage us with. And lastly, I would say this. Because the gospel reorients our view of intimacy and relationships, uh, intimacy and sex are not the same thing. It's possible to have sex without intimacy. It's possible to have intimacy without sex. This is where we kind of zoom in on just the, the unique relationships that we have because of Jesus and the family of God. And Kevin's going to be preaching on this in a couple of weeks, just this picture of brotherhood and sisterhood and depth of relationship. When we talk about intimacy, I think we can, we can too quickly go to sexual intimacy. Like they're, they're one and the same. We kind of flatten out intimacy with sex, but that's not biblical. And we should have a category for intimacy, depth and closeness of relationship that doesn't involve sex and romance. That there's a deep affection and love for people. It goes beyond sex and romance between a man and a woman, particularly between a husband and wife. And you see some examples of this scripturally. Well, probably one of the most well-known is the relationship between David and Jonathan. It's just deep, like remarkable friendship between two men. So when, when, uh, when David was grieving Jonathan's death in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, here's just a brief snippet of what he said about his friend, the one who strengthened him in the Lord. He says, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Isn't that remarkable? I would dare say if someone said something like this today, they might be accused of, of being homosexual. I don't mean to offend anybody in that, but because it's so foreign for two men to have that kind of affection for one another, it'd be pushed off into some abhorrent category. It's not healthy. But I can't tell you the number of men in this room that I've told them I love them. Because I do. Like I, lo I love men in my life who point me to Jesus and are an encouragement to me in my walk with him. And, and for you men in a world that wants to tell you somehow that that's not masculine or not man enough, well, check out the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. 
where Paul says, let everything you do be done in love. Men, be strong, act like men, let everything you do be done in love. So you have pictures in David and Jonathan, and you have it in Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Silas, and Epaphroditus, and countless others, and Timothy, and Proverbs 18, 24, and I'll close with this. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend, a particular friend, who sticks closer than a brother. We need to have those kind of friends. But the picture is this scripturally, is that that friend, a quintessential friend who's unshakable in Proverbs 18.24 is not found in human beings in this world. It's found in the Lord Jesus. The one in John 15 who looked at his followers and said, I have called you friends. I'm your savior and I'm your friend. And all you're clamoring for intimacy and connection and community, let it start by you finding me, abiding in me, So I'm the vine, you're the branches. Get your vitality from me. Get your connection from me. Get your life from me. Stop chasing things that will never satisfy your thirst. Wells that will run dry and leave you thirsty again. Don't look for food that's going to leave you hungry again. But eat, drink from me. And from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water welling up to eternal life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, my encouragement is even in any unique message like this, whatever degree you feel kind of bumped in your spirit and like maybe there's things that you're evaluating, like you never really understood the gospel message, why this cross stands behind me, that the wonder of it all is that the the one who made you by himself and for himself, the one who knows your every single action and word before you even lived a second, all the good and the bad. He's the same one that loves you the most. And Jesus died in your place to take all of your shame and all of your guilt. So you don't have to run into creation like Adam and Eve to try to cover up your nakedness and your shame. Run to him. Run to Jesus. Find your satisfaction and your forgiveness only and solely in him. He's the only place it can be found. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that um, there's no area of our lives uh, that is untouched by your supernatural work in us. And God, I don't, I don't know, uh, obviously, where this message falls on the hearts of those that sit in front of me. Um, but I pray that you do work in our hearts to, uh, to correct um, ways that we have thought wrongly about sex and romance and singleness that you cause us to, to look to you, Jesus, as the one who, uh, who alone can fulfill us. I thank you that in your perfect life, in your death as our substitute and our resurrection, that's where our hope and purpose is found. It's not found ultimately in human relationships. It's not found even in marriage. It's found in you. And I pray as individuals in this room that we would be men and women who children who run and cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus, the one who made us by himself and for himself, knows us completely and loves us still. God, would you, would you create in our church family um, an environment, a culture, 
uh, a soil, as it were, where uh, our singles, our divorcees, our, our, our widows can thrive, where you cultivate a perspective that sees those seasons. Uh, the gift of singleness is just that, a gift from you to be stewarded for your glory. And I pray that we, we would continue to elevate the gift of marriage without doing damage to the gift of singleness. Would you protect us from the lies of culture that would call, call us to believe that sex is nothing and everything all at the same time, that we put it in its rightful place in the context of marriage, guard against all the various temptations outside of that context, and fight with diligence to walk in righteousness and purity and holiness. And thank you that you accept us, not because of what we've done, but Father, you accept us because of what your son did. He's perfect. He's righteous. He perfectly obeyed the law in all ways without sin and was able to be our perfect lamb and took away our sin. We love you, and Jesus, we celebrate because you're alive. You are risen from the grave, and so we have hope for today and for tomorrow, and even today, you are at the right hand of the Father praying for your people. So no matter what voice of accusation, no matter what whisper of shame uh, comes your way from our enemy, that his voice is never going to be stronger than yours, that your blood, Jesus, speaks a better word than the blood of retribution for our sin, and we thank you for that. We pray these things, Jesus, in your precious and holy name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one last song.